Hey science fans, I have another fantastic podcast to recommend to you guys. The Waterline Podcast. Everything you need to know about the science of water. Have we managed to develop the most sustainable irrigation techniques? Can water be the bringer of peace? Can flushing your toilet light up your house? The answer to all of these questions and many more in the Waterline Podcast which is an initiative of the Israel New Tech as part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. It's a new podcast that, uh, is, that is created to communicate the many facets of water. So please, check out an episode. I've, uh, I've checked out several. I actually went back and listened to the very first episode, which gives you a nice overview of uh, sources of fresh water all around the world, rivers, lakes, underground sources, and to see how, how delicate they are, how prone they are to contamination. This is exceptionally important stuff for our world and our future, and I highly recommend this podcast. Search Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. Fantastic episode for you guys today. We're going to hop right into it. Just a very quick plug for the Laughable app. Make sure for all of your podcasting needs, check out the Laughable app and subscribe to me on the Laughable app so you can hear me on uh, You Made It Weird, for example. I have my fifth appearance coming up from that. Real interesting conversation, and you can just know anytime I'm a guest on any other podcast, and not just me, all of your favorite comedians. Super cool feature, and more features coming all of the time, including getting uh, getting you guys tickets to my shows, that sort of thing, letting you know when I'm in town. The There's a whole world of possibilities coming to you through the Laughable app. has five-star rating, and, uh, and if you do have it and you're enjoying it, make sure and leave a review for them. Uh, they're a fantastic company, and I'm proud to be working with them. So, yeah. If you enjoy improv jingles about things, check out the Laughable app. Yeah. All right. Enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, my guest is Associate Professor at UCLA Anderson School of Management. Cassie McGillner-Holmes is joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Or thanks for being here, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to I, have you. I've nailed the intro on the first time. Nice. I always share with my listeners how bad the intros are, but they don't get to hear. Normally, they don't get to hear me screwing up and everything. But well, I can this vouch time, for this being the first and yeah, only intro. This time, they get to celebrate with me. <laughs> I nailed your name. Rarely happens. This is, we're off to a great start. Awesome. And we're going to be talking a bit about, well, all sorts of fun stuff, but uh, happiness... I think yeah. a little bit yeah. today. Uh, I think it's a thing that that people seem interested in. It's one yes. of those things people uh, people enjoy. Um, yeah, and probably motivates many of us mm-hmm. in many of our decisions. And yeah, I think 
funnily enough, being at a business school, there's often a question of, you know, why happiness? And so I think it's amazing that a first slide of every talk is motivating why happiness, where I think it's so obvious, because as you noted, everyone wants to be happy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but even in the workplace, work isn't where people go to be happy. Right. So, well, how did you get into it? Were you like a little girl that, like, I just want to make more people happy? I want to figure out how this happiness stuff works? <laughs> or was it just a more roundabout way of just you, you, got, you went into school, you took some generals, and then you... So it wasn't as a little girl. As a little girl, fortunately, I was lucky enough to sort of naturally be happy. But it was third year of my PhD program in a marketing PhD program. And I had a little bit of an existential crisis where I was because I was at that point um, studying how do you present options to people such that or consumers in particular, such that they'll be satisfied with the choice that they make. And then I was like, what? I don't want to like spend my career and life figuring out, you know, like how to present products in an assortment. And then I was like, all right, well, do I just drop out of my PhD program or, and like become a therapist or something? Um, which some sometimes I'm like, oh, that would still be so fulfilling. Um, but Instead, so then I was like, well, or can I just sort of shift instead of thinking about satisfaction with choices amongst products, maybe it's satisfaction with life choices or choices of how to spend your time. And so I shifted the outcome variable from choice satisfaction to choice satisfaction, but with choice being um, how to spend one time, one's time and the decisions they make in their life more broadly. So that was when I was like outcome is happiness in general and in one's life and fortunately i was able to finish my phd program and then sort of continue on my way from there just having shifted my dependent variable so instead of being like i wonder if i can make people be really pleased with the jam that they selected uh um, or jelly um (laughs) two different (laughs) things i think they're the same thing um Instead, I wonder if I can apply those same principles to actually just like being happy in general. Yeah, exactly. Is it, is, it, is everything just scalable? Is it some of the same principles? Um, it is some of the same principles. Um, and then and then as I started applying sort of the one principle that sort of started me on this direction, then I'm just figuring out what makes people happy without even thinking about the you know principles of um that I'd been working with before. So for instance, the first principle that sort of got me in this path uh, was um looking at the effect of focusing attention on time rather than money. And so in the product domain, if I asked or I did ask consumers, so think about your iPhone. Um, And some of them I asked, how much time have you spent on your iPhone? And others I asked, how much money have you spent on your iPhone? And then I asked everyone, um, how much do you like Apple as a brand? How much do you like your iPhone? How connected do you feel to this product? And what I found was that shifting people's attention towards the time that they spent made them like the brand more. Um, and it, that was driven by them feeling more connected to it. So it's like if you think about the time you've invested on something, 
versus the money you've invested in it, um, then people like it more. So taking that principle, I was like, all right, well, what if you think about sort of the time you spend more generally, or if you make people think about time instead of money, um, there I found that people end up being happier because they spend their time more deliberately. Even though time is this, you know, sort of everywhere pervasive thing that we are living, um, surprisingly, maybe because it is so um, ubiquitous that people don't attend to it so much. Um, whereas there's a lot of attention. Our money enjoys a lot of attention. Um, it's easier to measure. Time is time is very subjective. Yes. Um, it is easier to measure money. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's uh, money is less, well, I guess if you decide of like how you define fungibility, um, there are some differences there. Um, and then my research shows that time is more reflective of yourself. And that's where you get all these sort of lovely consequences of focusing on money or on time rather. So when you talk about someone, when you're asking people about how much time they spend on an iPhone, because can that backfire? It can, because things can be a time suck in a way. It can like, to me, I'm like, damn you, angry birds. You're too good. <laughs> You've taken too much of my time. Yeah, so time can be, a, there can be wasted time for sure. And you can also even think about time as um, a, a cost. So in that iPhone example, I think most of people were thinking about the time that they spent on it. Um, and potentially that is wasted time, which we can talk about. Um, but they could also think about, um, the time that they had to wait in line to get it or the time it took, you know, for it to arrive at their door once they've ordered it. So there is this um, potential cost of, in, you know, spending time in order to get something, just like spending money in order to get something. So to see whether or sort of to hold constant um, that sort of cost um, factor I ran a study, actually, when I was living in San Francisco, where there were these free concerts um, on the weekend. And so they were free, so no money. But the thing you had to pay (laughs) was with your time, because in order to get into the concert, to get a good seat, you had to arrive there um, well before the concert. So you're sort of sitting around for hours waiting. Um, And there I... Um, went around <laughs> sort of bugging people uh, during the concert and asked them. And so the same intervention where I basically just asked, how much time have you spent in order to see this concert? And others, I asked, how much money have you spent in order to th- see this concert? And the money answer is everyone's like zero. So they should feel really good about it. Um, whereas time, they're like, dude, I've you know had to wait here for two hours. And then I asked how much they're enjoying the concert and how satisfied they are with the concert. And those, even in that case, those who thought about the time that they spent um, were more satisfied with the concert than those who thought about the lack of money that they spent. And again, it gets back to this time being more reflective of who you are. So how we spend our time, you know, sort of comprises our constant stream of experiences which sum up to our lives. And so, and like only you can spend that time, right? Like your time is only yours. And so there's this very sort of self-identity 
self narrative and like even beyond self narrative, it, as I said, it literally is your life. Um, and I think, and my research suggests that as a consequence of that, that personal component of it makes it so that, geez, if I, you know, you go through this for the concert example, if I've spent all this time on it, this is like really me. Like mm. I've, I've put myself mm. into this. Um, and therefore you sort of get a lot out of it. Now, I think your interesting question is what if it's like crappy time, right? That you've, that you're spending, um, you know, there's all these stats around Americans spending a ridiculously large amount of time consuming TV and on their iPhone. And the question is, is that quality time? And I don't think my research can totally speak to that. But what I will say is that um, my findings have shown that when people think about time, they spend it more deliberately. And typically that that time is in line with things that are more happy and fulfilling. So for instance, in a paper, which sort of has a bunch of different studies, I use this sort of priming task to make them think about time or money without them actually knowing that that's what I'm doing. So they had, it was like a sentence unscrambled task. So they're asked to, as quickly as possible, go through, you know, different sets of words to create a sentence and embedded, like all the words are the same, but embedded in half of the participants, um, sets of words were time related words mm-hmm. and the other were money related words. And then I asked them how they plan to spend their time in the next 24 hours. And what you see is, well, in light of prior work that has, um, in an effort to sort of identify what are those ways of spending time that are associated with more positive emotion versus more negative emotion, what they did was they tracked a sample of people over the course of their days, looking at how they spent their, what they did, as well as tracking over the course of their days how they felt. So they could identify those activities that are associated with more positive emotions and so more happy activities as well as those activities that on average are associated with more negative emotion. Um, and so from that set of work um, or those that set of findings, um, the happy activities were socializing, sex, <laughs> um, these sort of interpersonally connecting activities. The least happy activities were um, commuting, <laughs> like that's literally the least happy. And the reason I think it is is because it's that sort of wasted time idea. Um, work on average, which fortunately for me, probably for you, work is actually not as awful as, as apparently for the average American, um, as well as housework. So all of that is to say that um, in looking at whether this time prime versus money prime influences people's tendencies to engage in happier and happy activities, what I saw was that activating time led people to plan to spend more time uh, socializing and engaging with their loved ones, plan to spend less time working and commuting. Now, this is just asking people how they plan to spend their time. In an effort to see if it actually influenced behavior, what I did was go to a context where um, People both socialize as well as do work, namely a coffee shop. And what it, as um, the sort of cafe patrons were entering the coffee shop, I asked them to fill out a survey, which were those same sentences to unscramble. And so half the people entering the coffee shop 
were led to focus on time sort of surreptitiously and you know the other half were led to focus on money and then I had a research assistant in there observing how people spent their time and those who went into the coffee shop were led to focus on time spent a greater proportion of their time at the cafe socializing so they were spent more time chatting to people around them um talking on the phone (laughs) while in line um and talking to their barista um compared to those who had been led to think about money going into the cafe who were on their computers their noses were buried in a book and then as uh participants left i asked them they filled out a like mini survey which asked how happy and satisfied they felt with their time at the cafe and those who spent more time socializing and connecting left feeling happier. Um, so. Yeah, I like that. Uh, although some of that is uh, discouraging that, I mean, sex is like eight minutes, whereas your commute <laughs> is potentially much longer than that. And people don't like So that's, uh, that's, yeah. that's why I masturbate during my commute. just balances it oh, out. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> and it probably makes the commute a little less it, negative. It does. <laughs> it does. Actually, I... The reality is I listen to a lot of audiobooks while I'm yeah. commuting and I like commuting when I'm listening to an audiobook. So like I'm learning the whole time that I'm driving. Yeah. But- and I think I mean that is why commuting um tends to be so negative is because most Americans commute in the car mm-hmm. and that is just lost time, but as you said, if you imbue that time and make it sort of better where you're learning through podcasts, um, people who commute on the train um, and get work done, that it's not it, it's not wasted time, then it actually um, is better time. And similarly related, you know, when I was talking about work being on average associated with negative affect, again, that's not for everyone. Um, and I ran a study where I was looking at the same sort of time versus money priming to test, is it about work is bad per se. So thinking about time will make you want to work less. Or is it that for those uh, who uh, view work as as not fun, is that where you see the effect coming from? And so what I did was I ran this the same sort of priming study among um, working adults in uh, the Bay Area, um, both looking at those who work for for-profits versus those who work for nonprofits with my sort of hypothesis as well as which was supported by the data that those who work for for for-profits find their work sort of more intrinsically fulfilling than those who work, or for nonprofits find it more intrinsically fulfilling than those who work for for for-profits. And what I did was, you know, prime them with time or money, ask them how do they plan to spend their next 24 hours, looking in particular on how much they plan to work. And what you saw was that the sort of the by thinking about time, it only led those who worked for for profits and who reported that their work is less meaningful. Um, that's where you saw the dip. Whereas those who worked for nonprofits and reported their um, work as more fulfilling, that actually time, but mm. didn't sort of detract from it. So all to say that um, when you think about your time, people spend it more deliberately. And whatever it is that is sort of deliberate, like a good use of time for you, that's where you see the um, influence on behavior. 
Hmm. I'm curious, what is what about when you spend money to save time? Like going back to your concert example, <laughs> yeah. which one I love that you uh, went to ask a bunch of people on drugs about time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> time's an illusion, man. Um, but what if what if there? And, and this is just pure speculation. Something that uh, you probably. Or maybe there's some concert situation you could test this. But what if you had the same exact situation, but there was for a certain amount of money, you could get some sort of a fast pass thing ahead of time where you didn't have to wait in line. You can just show up when the concert started. Now you don't have to. You can pay the forty dollars instead to not wait in. Do you, yeah, do you, do you I, think I, that okay. people would would enjoy that? I, I mean, so I that's guess, that's a good question in terms of I. I think it needs to be tested with respect to the impact on their enjoyment of the experience. But there is a recent paper, um, which I love, by Ashley Willens, um, Mike Norton, Liz Dunn, and I think Paul Smeets, um, where they find an effect where looking at if you spend money to buy time or sort of to buy out a bad time, then people report greater life satisfaction. Um, and so with this idea that because time is so precious, if you, you know, do away with the bad time, then in general, you'll be happy, presumably, because people are allocating that sort of time spent on chores or grocery shopping, which they've now outsourced to Amazon to deliver it to their door, um, that they can spend in better ways. But I notably, that's a different question than, you know, the question of, how much do they like, you know, the groceries once they show up, um, having not spent the time to acquire them? Um, but if you, you know, look across one's days, we have a limited amount of time, and hopefully you're spending that time sort of in the best way possible. So <clears throat> all to say, it's a good Thank you for this study idea, and I'll go test it. Particularly living so close to Disneyland, where there are huge lines, and having young children, it's like, oh, there must be a better way to spend this day. And I know that you can pay a pretty penny to mm. um, minimize the time you spent in line or spend in line. So mm. the question is, does that make the ride better? Yeah, Which is or- a different question than does that make your day at Disneyland better? So right. Disneyland better, yes. The question is, does it influence your enjoyment of the ride? Yeah, if you can just get on right away and you didn't have to wait to earn it. I don't know. <laughs> is that anticipation building up the whole time that you're waiting there? Is that part of the excitement? Yeah. Or and then you're setting yourself up for disappointment, too, if you waited all that time and then it was it was a real lame ride. And then now you waited all of that time for nothing. I guess there's a lot of ways of looking at it. In yeah. terms of anticipation... Um, did I see? Did you do some work with uh, with shipping? Like uh, like differences? Maybe I'm thinking of someone else. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, well, what, what what do you? How do? It, it just I was just making me think of these days where people people want their shipping just faster and yeah. faster. That's the drive now is to like no, two days is is the norm, and I don't right. want to pay for it either. Uh, and now there's like four day Amazon shipping and everything. But I, I don't know. I think that. I think that some of the anticipation of waiting for that book or board game or whatever is is being taken away, or maybe you'd want the immediacy. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. That's not my research. There is um, some neat work that's uh, compared that sort of anticipation uh, for experiences versus material goods. Um, 
by Tom Gilovich and some of his colleagues. And what they find is that when you are spending that time, you know, quote unquote, waiting for an experience versus that time, quote unquote, waiting for, um, you know, that thing or that possession that you've ordered, um, the waiting for experiences is experienced as anticipation and excitement, whereas waiting for a thing is anticipated as waiting. <laughs> so you, even the sort of emotional tenor of that same time spent in anticipation is experienced differently, whether you're waiting for an event versus a material good. Um, and I, I love that dichotomy between experiences and material goods. And I have some um, of my work that I've been looking at um, with Cindy Chan, uh, we were looking at um, the effect of um, giving slash receiving experiential gifts versus material gifts um, and finding that uh, receiving an experiential gift, you know, like, you know, a gift certificate to a restaurant or concert tickets or, you know, what have you versus a material gift, which tends to be, you know, jewelry, electronics, um, the recipient feels more close and connected to the gift giver having received the experiential gift and it doesn't require doing the experience together so it's actually not just about the greater time spent between the gift giver and the gift recipient that this effect happens even if it's like you give me a gift certificate for a restaurant and you don't come and eat with me mm -hmm. that while i'm at the restaurant i'm still thinking of you so there's that <laughs> sort of vicarious consumption um and shared experience uh, I do, we do a lot of my girlfriend and I, we get a, we, a lot of our gifts are board games. Oh, interesting. Material experience. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, that's an experience that keeps on giving. Yeah. Too. So that, that is interesting because we, um, ran some studies where just like the board game, there's a material component as well as an experiential component. And we found that when you draw people's attention to the experiential aspect, so in the card, <laughs> that you guys are giving with your board game or even as what you're saying oh, when crap. you give it. I'm supposed to write cards now too. You're really getting me in trouble here. <laughs> well, as you're handing it over and be like, this, here's this board game that you're giving physically. Next you're going to tell me I have to wrap the thing. <laughs> All right, go on. Sorry, um, yeah, relationship advice that I'm giving is good. Um, that if you frame it as all those evenings that you're going to be spending, you know, doing this together as a sort of temporal gift or experiential gift, then you'll get the benefits of um, the experiential versus material. So all to say, even if you're not giving concert tickets, just highlight the experiential component of the material gifts that hmm. people give. And people tend to give material gifts. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, and that's a lot of pressure off I don't like buying jewelry or clothes or th like I'm always going to screw it up if I do it. And then research <laughs> says I shouldn't do it anyway. So there, exactly. that just makes my life so much easier. Um, in terms of, uh, I have a habit of asking people questions that they probably have no answer to. Or whatever, <laughs> that, so you to. can always take a pass. <laughs> sure. Um, I think about TV consumption mm -hmm. a lot. Uh, I think that as, uh, as someone who is in the entertainment business, I'm still quite comfortable calling TV the devil. Uh, I think it, I think it's a horrible waste of time. I think that there's, uh, I think that our brains are constantly learning all of the time, and we have to be a little bit careful about what our brains are learning. I think that, I think that, like Game of Thrones, for example, 
wonderful, wonderful TV show. But then I, I wonder, I'm like, does it help if my brain thinks that there's like dragon and like there's a part of my brain that is like worried about dragons? Like, I'm not sure that's bettering <laughs> my life. But then I think about it and I go, well, this is art. I'm, I'm consuming art. So this is this experience of if I were to go to a museum and walk around and look at paintings, I would have been like, I just enriched my life. But I often don't do that with TV necessarily, or maybe different kinds. Of, if you're, say, watching a reality show um, or a, or sports or something where where maybe it's harder to consider it art than, than something like... Uh, there's a show, The Leftovers, on HBO that I would call like high art. Um, I, I wonder if that influences. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's a great question, which certainly my research can't speak to, but I'm happy to engage with the question. I is... love wild speculation. <laughs> I know scientists call it hypothesizing, but I could. Yeah, but, uh... um, and it's certainly relevant because as I'm so focused on how people spend their time. And what I, my hypothesis from that is I think similar to yours, maybe not art as being the way to describe the difference, but I think there is good TV consumption as well as wasted, like good time spent watching TV as well as wasted. I think the same with books, though. There's like Mm -hmm. books that do not. And so you call it art, which actually might be sort of similar to what I'm thinking of books that or TV that takes you to a place such that you can see the world through another's eyes mm-hmm. um so if it increases empathy if it in like informs you in some way um and sort of elevates such like similar to i think what art does um then i think it is sort of good time like it's good time spent or quality time yeah. spent and you know without with actually these- having to hunt the whale yourself right um and so many of us I only don't. know of one book, by the way. <laughs> um, but so many of us like don't have the opportunity to travel the world, yeah. and we certainly don't have the real opportunity to enter someone else's shoes um, and experience their world, even if it's you know in LA or like situated in LA. Um, but I think that there's real potential in traveling and expanding our mind, mm-hmm. and so. TV, movies, books, art that helps us in that sort of endeavor, I think, is quality time. Mm. Um, but I think that when you look at the stats of, I don't I, something like what, the average American watches some ridiculous like seven or five yeah. hours a day or something. It's crazy. They're not watching yeah. like, you know, these shows that they sort of have the TV on and right. it's sort of right. one reality show that bleeds into the next. It's a lot of game and, shows yeah. and stuff that you're not paying um, a whole lot of attention to. Yeah, so this actually goes back to my, what my research can speak to again is that deliberate use of time. Um, that if you are turning on the TV to watch a show that will, you know, lift you up or take you somewhere, Mm -hmm. um, then that is good use of time. Yeah, I guess a lot of times when I'm traveling, that's just background noise to me. Like, (laughs) I'm just so used to traveling that I'm not like, I'm going to go out and experience this. I'm just like, okay, yeah, there's the McDonald's in this town and, and, and not, you know, taking it. I'm not, I'm not really like deliberately investing myself in it. So is there something that you can do in the fact that you have this amazing job, which does t- 
take you around the country, if not world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're all the the concept of hedonic adaptation, right? So we as humans, we naturally adapt to things as we're sort of encounter it um, again and again. And that is good when we've encountering bad stuff because we can sort of deal with it. But it's less good when, you know, we're adapting to and habituating to good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there are the, in positive psychology anyway, there's sort of, they try to have these tricks to remind us to engage in, in those activities that we're so exposed to are frequently exposed to such that we can continue to enjoy them. So for your traveling, mm-hmm. you have to do stuff to I, remind yeah, yourself I of used the coolness. To. I, when I, <laughs> I mean, I remember I was like, even like getting on a plane was like, wow, I'm <laughs> traveling. <laughs> and now I'm just like, oh no, the airport again. This is awful. Um, I, it, I mean, believe it or not, as cheesy as they might sound, uh, tours, even by myself, when I force myself to be like, I should, I'll go on a tour of this yeah. town and learn some weird history or whatever that I don't consciously think that I'll care about. But it turns out I usually am like, oh, okay, that was interesting. I'm glad that I spent my time doing yeah. that. I think it's, uh, yeah, it's easy to get complacent and be like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna sit in my hotel room and like, get work done or whatever i know definitely that's you know context is everything if i if my girlfriend travels with me then all of a sudden i'm it's like vacation all the things to do and (laughs) yeah and then i get to kind of you especially if it's uh this is an interesting thing you you go you go to a place and you have a nice time and you find the cool restaurant or thing to do or whatever and then then you've done that a couple times and it's fine. But then you get to show someone new and like kind of relive it through their yeah. eyes. And it's uh, there's something refreshing about it. You have someone come and visit you in L.A. or whatever it might be. And you get, totally. get to give them the little tour that you would never, ever just by yourself go out totally. and see the Hollywood stars or you yeah. know whatever thing that you would never do normally. Yeah. So there's there's definitely something uh, I might need friends is what I'm realizing. It's, po- <laughs> it's possible I need friends. Um, um, well, another thing. That's why I'm here. In fact, will you be my <laughs> happily be your friend? Uh, you have fun stories. Um, another thing, if you if you don't have luck finding friends, is <laughs> um, is an, uh, there's research I forget who um, did it, um, but they found that. As people are about to leave a place, like if they're going to move, it takes that for them to actually go and do all the cool, you know, site, you know, do the tours and Uh, go to those restaurants in their city. Um, Been here for five years. (laughs) Should probably go out and see the beach before I leave. Right. So if you, again, this actually all goes to the, you know, realizing the scarcity of one's time. It motivates you to spend it deliberately Ah. and to go to those sites and do those things in your hometown. Well, not to get all dark for no reason, but that is, that's like the cliche when people have a heart attack or, or, you know, get the cancer scare or whatever it might be is like a lot of, I mean obviously it can go south too but when when things like turn around or or what a lot of times people are like that's the best thing that ever happened to me because right. i realized that time is uh finite and and uh i 
more mindful about how I use it and yeah um, and that sort of thing so maybe we all just need a near-death experience that's a that's a new business that I'm starting up <laughs> I show up at your house I almost kill you and, <laughs> and, then, and then you're happier for the rest of really? your life uh, I mean I think there's safer ways to go about yes. it. I meditate a lot um, and the more I go in streaks and sometimes I don't and it's one of those things that you you won't really notice the day-to-day uh, an influence. But when you either do regularly or don't regularly, you will notice a difference. And I feel like when I'm meditating regularly and I'm more mindful of even just like, I am bending over and tying my shoes right now. I am walking out the door. I am driving here. And just like a little more just silly, stupid self-talk of, of just being a little more. And then I, I make more deliberate decisions. And I think I end up probably using my time a little more wisely doing things that I want to do. And when I'm doing them, appreciating it a little more. Um, I definitely, because I go in streaks of like, I get to sit in this hotel and write jokes and I have the best job in the world to, uh, I guess I got to write jokes again today <laughs> to, screw that, I'm going to binge watch a show that I'm going to call high art. Uh, and so uh, every day is a little bit different. I don't yeah. know. I, I think that's right. And to the extent that you're not just sort of floating through. We all need those. Again, it's all about spending time deliberately, mm. you know, without putting a value judgment on whatever that time is and as you said there you know watching a tv show might be just what you need on some days um whereas other days it might drive you crazy because you're like "Ugh, why am i sitting here watching this which i certainly find myself in you know given the same movie it's just you know where i am and you know Mm. so again deliberate time i think is um the sort of easy takeaway Mm. um wondering how my drug use has influenced my concept of time my alcohol use in particular because i used to like black out a lot uh and then i look back at it because i don't drink anymore um or at least at the moment i don't uh and haven't for a while and then now when i look back i'm like oh that was just like hours upon days and days where i just like was not there i wasn't even a person like what in the world and i was doing it with the intention of i'm going to live it up you know like i'm gonna have a blast tonight and uh didn't didn't always work out that way what what experiences um i I mean how how much with like things being memorable how much does that factor into yeah so that's a um a good question um so I've done work exploring. So before I told you about the sort of happiness benefits of experiences over material goods, but then the question is, well, what types of experiences? Um, and so uh, with my uh, colleague, uh, Amit Bhattacharji, we explored the question of sort of extraordinary versus ordinary experiences. So extraordinary are certainly more memorable. These tend to be, so what we did was, well, and the question being, is it extraordinary or ordinary that leads to greater happiness? Um, and so what we did was we asked, I mean, at this point, it was like thousands of Americans to recall a happy experience. And then we told some people to recall an extraordinary experience, others to recall an ordinary experience. And so the extraordinary experiences that people tended to recall 
were um, these once in a lifetime vacations. So that's you get those not only do you get the memories, but you certainly get the photographs of, you know, you, you know, on top of the Eiffel Tower and like, you know, <laughs> looking about, like over Machu Picchu or whatever it is. Um, and then you also get life milestones, again, where photographs are involved, mm-hmm. um, like graduation, getting married, having a baby, having grandchildren. Um, and then you also get sort of cultural events that fall in the extraordinary, sort of going to, you know, a YouTube con- concert. Um, in the ordinary experiences that people um, recalled, you get these sort of simple moments that are shared. So, you know, having breakfast with your girlfriend, um, uh, for me, you know, like cuddling with my five-year-old or, um, and then you also see treats. So like enjoying a glass of wine, a cold frappuccino on a hot day. And then you also see sort of being, uh, noticing or being in nature. So in looking at the happy, so we asked people to recall these experiences and to tell us just how happy it made them. And what we found was age mattered. So for young people, um, extraordinary leads to greater happiness than ordinary. For older people, and more specifically, while age is a sort of demographic that drives it, what it really is about um, the extent to which people feel like their time in life is limited or not. So older people or those who view their time in life as limited, they extracted as much happiness from ordinary experiences as extraordinary experiences. So those ordinary experiences, those like little sweet moments shared with people, that glass of wine, um, that those experiences tend to make older people happier mm-hmm. than younger people. Um, yeah, I had my my parents um, came to Portland to visit, and I remember my dad like we, you know we went around to all these great restaurants and saw some things and whatnot, and then but we also like usually ended each evening just hanging out on the porch of this Airbnb and talking. And that was my dad's favorite part. And I remember as a, I'm 37 now, but as a younger person, I definitely would have been like, what do you mean? That was your, like, that's, <laughs> right. you mean the super boring part where we were just sitting there? And right. now uh, that I'm older, I'm like, oh yeah, I get that. Yeah. And so, yeah, relatedly, I have um, a whole sort of set of papers um, with Jennifer Ocker and Sepp Kampar where we were looking at how people experience happiness over the course of their life. So in the project I just told you, it sort of shows that age influences what experiences lead to greater happiness. But in this project, we were looking at how people experience happiness. So the first, what we did was, the first thing we did was, or it was actually sort of stemmed from um, SEP, who he uh, was actually initially created as an art installation that showed at the MoMA. Um, But he wrote this program that would crawl the blogosphere and pull out any time someone wrote, I feel or I'm feeling, it would capture what they're feeling. And since it's happening in real time, you could see amongst like, you know, millions and millions of feelings, who's feeling them? When are they feeling them? What are they feeling? And so what we looked at was when someone wrote, I feel or I'm feeling happy, what were they expressing? Mm -hmm. And so we saw an effective age. So, and it was sort of this continual effect as people got older. So younger people, when they expressed feeling happy, they were more likely to express excitement. So I feel happy and excited. As you get older, 
um, expressions of happiness were included calm, peaceful, serene. So I feel really happy and calm today. Um, and you see, so it's like folks in their 20s, they're more likely to express excited happiness. Folks in their 30s, you sort of see that's where the shift happens, where it's like they're equally likely to mention excited and calm happiness. 40s, 50s, 60s, and it continues to get sort of the difference gets bigger. Mm -hmm. They're more likely to express calm happiness. And so then we replicated that with just surveys to ask, you know, what does happiness feel like to you? Um, and then, you know, as I mentioned before, it's not really about age necessarily. It's really about how much time people feel like they have left and therefore the preciousness of that time. And so we we ran studies where we um, made uh, younger people um, sort of put them in the mindset of older people. But you talked about mindfulness and it's actually sort of bringing your attention to the here and now. Mm -hmm. So when we put younger people in that sort of more mature <laughs> mindset, then they were more likely to express peaceful happiness or feel happiness from peacefulness. Um, whereas, and similarly, when we made older people sort of view their futures as more expansive and be more sort of future focused, then you saw them experience greater happiness um, as excitement. Mm. Um, it's the, this more anticipated, like I'm excited for something. So all to say, to totally support a couple of things you've said, you know, of the excitement of, you know, getting drunk right. <laughs> in your in your younger years, because um, that that is sort of what we deemed, uh, or not what we deemed, we felt was exciting. And I'm mm. sure, well, at least me as I was younger, as a 20-year-old, and I would see, you know, older people, um, you know, having those like quiet nights in of watching movies i'm like oh so boring tell like promise me to myself that i will never do that but then when you get to that age as in me now it's not that it's boring mm -hmm. it's just that that really is what makes me happy right um and so i think that um, one of the insights from this uh, set of findings is um that not to sort of hold yourself to what made you happy at another time in your life because it's not likely what makes you happy now hmm. or how you feel happy now. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, there's only so much you can do the same thing. <laughs> over and over. Um, well, I, I have a few things that I want to say about that. One, I th we're both middle-aged, I guess. <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't I, know when we turn middle-aged, but I, yes, I don't I know am... either, but I, I turned 37 and then I was like, Huh. I have like my and my family just lives forever. Like it, it just, <laughs> despite my all of my reckless youth, uh, I I my uh my family, all of my family members live till like their 90s. So I'm like I'm not even like halfway done with this life and and I've had uh I don't really at the moment need much excitement, but I can see people <laughs> See, looking at that being like oh my gosh we're only halfway there and then thinking of that kind of increasing their perception of the expanse of time ahead of right. them and leading to that m more wild wanting the convertible or whatever <laughs> i've never right. understood why the convertible the is like crisis? the most exciting yeah, thing in I the world oh, they're nice i guess but i don't know <laughs> um <laughs> uh but but yeah that that's so it made me think of that. I, I guess there's maybe these moments in life where 
where you go, oh, I have that much more time to go. Yeah, I'm I, I'm about your age. Uh, last week I turned 38, so now I'm a yeah. year older than you. Um, but yeah, similarly, sometimes I, I feel young. <laughs> and mm-hmm. like I think we're sort of at the point where it's like you can sort of claim whichever side, yeah. right? It's like, oh, I'm getting older. Or, oh, I'm, I'm still I youthful, still have... but wise now. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have it both ways. Yeah. And that's actually what my research shows. It's in the 30s. I don't know if it's that there's conflict or that we're sort of enjoying both. But that's where you see that it's both excitement and calm. Or hmm. So we can we can claim either side. Just hmm. like I do, <clears throat> since we're the same age, I think you're similarly on that line of like whether you're a millennial or not. And, um, and so it's like I claim being a millennial – when it suits me and then i claim you know being what's the generation before the non-millennials anyway yeah. Not, this, uh, yeah. does, does any other generation matter it's all millennials <laughs> um yeah i i feel like i huh, yeah strange it's funny too because i've done really exciting things in my life that i've approached from a very calm <laughs> demeanor so i got a little bit of both worlds what about uh, what about expectations um, in, in all of this? Because there's so many things in life where uh, travel or, I mean, travel's, travel's really a pretty good example where you plan the trip to Hawaii all year round and then you go to do it and uh, the flight gets delayed and then the hotel wasn't quite what it looked like online and... And, like, turns out that the area you picked is kind of a little more of a rat race than you're looking for. And and so there's these, you have these, uh, you built up your expectations too high. Um, whereas, I guess, just being like, I'm going to meditate and enjoy this hike today is very, very much lowering your expectation. And then context right. is so... Yeah, context is so important as well because I like sitting and writing, but it's a different thing if I'm sitting and writing on a beach than if I'm like sitting and writing in like a prison or something like that, right. you know, doing the exact same. Right. Uh, and then whether you're forced to, like I'm forced to travel for work, whereas whereas I might go to the same place for enjoyment and then that'd be a completely different thing right. it's just i always like to remind people of how complicated life is and how many <laughs> yeah how many how variables many there are yeah um totally yeah so some people define i mean if you view happiness or the experience of happiness as sort of surpassing expectations and so if expectations are increasing then that leaves less room for feeling happy and so i think that that's not a good recipe for actually enjoying happiness. But what I will say is that um, that to the extent that you can, you know, it sounds hokey, but we've already, we've already sort of gone down the hokey route of, you know, being present, focused, and mindful. If, like, it's really about, even though that hotel might not be quite what you thought it would be, mm-hmm. I've been, like, focusing on the stuff that's good. So when I... Um, Always when I, I am sort of presenting research on happiness, I uh, share... Lower expectations? <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, I share the model by um, Sonia Libomorski, which um, points out that sort of half of our happiness is influenced by our natural disposition, our set point. 
um, and 10% by life circumstances. So things that you can't sort of change immediately, like age, income level, gender, whether you're married, that sort of thing. And I think that the reason why, and then the 40% is the part I love because that's determined by what we think about on a daily basis and what we do on a daily basis. Now, the reason that so much of our happiness is influenced by our set point and less by our circumstances is because of how we naturally um, respond to or interpret events or experiences. So, and um, so all to say that it sort of picks up on (laughs) showing up at that, you know, hotel that is not nearly as awesome. And the person who's like, oh, not as awesome as I thought, but look at this like amazing view mm-hmm. or look like we're not going to be spending much time yeah. in this room anyway. <laughs> anyway we're going to be yeah. seeing the sights uh, versus the one that, you know, the sort of natural grump. He's like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, why? Why did why are we here? This yeah. is like so not delivering on anything that I wanted or expected. And so I think that that the 40 percent that's sort of open to what you focus on and what you're doing, I think it's really powerful because it can eat, bring even those grumps. Mm-hmm. It's sort of you can apply the same natural or like the tendencies that are natural for some, but those same uh, sort of behaviors and thought processes to the grumps so that Mm. you can like remind yourself when you show up to that, like less than ideal hotel room, it's like, okay, what should I be doing? I should be focusing on the good stuff. And so again, hokey, but um, in my family, because I'm a happiness researcher, I'm allowed to do these things um, and not feel super silly, but I think they're worthwhile. Yeah. Is at the dinner table every night. I have two kids and a husband. Um, is we say what was like the thing that made you happiest that day, um, and what it does is it shifts our attention. Even if you had like the crappiest day ever, you're like, mm. all right, well, what what was the happiest? And so it shifts your attention to focus on the good of whatever the situation is than the bad. Um, so. Mm. That was a long-winded response. No, to- I've been doing it all wrong. I've been, I've been sitting down. You're like, tell me about the most miserable part of your day. And it turns out that was the wrong thing to wrong question. To prime. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's really encouraging that there's a fair amount of flexibility because I mean, we talk a lot about on, on this show about um, you know how how much genes p- play a role in things and and uh, and there's. There's definitely people with predispositions uh, because it is when when time is this, you know, typically you can prime thinking of time and people and, and that will make them happier if they have more of it. But then there's also people that are just like, oh, this is just like a really long, sl- slow crawl to death. <laughs> right. So like more time that doesn't improve things, just just more of this life stuff, which to me is suffering. But I got but to hear that there's like 40 percent of wiggle room is really <laughs> yeah. encouraging. Yeah. I think that I've experienced that in my own life where I've definitely Good. been in horrible funks. And then and then also uh, like right now, a very happy person, I'd say. Great. Um, and and so yeah, that's that's just nice to hear that there there is some is, is there is there um so is there any uh, I mean you probably um, covered most of what you would tell me here anyway, but is is there any I, I love the table trick. Is there any other little takeaways that you might leave people with the, the kind of the summation of some of this research? 
Yeah. I mean, I, I we've already covered it, but I think the summation is, again, that realizing our time is so precious. Um, and in realizing that, it will have all these wonderful consequences of having you spend it more deliberately, having you sort of extract greater enjoyment from whatever it is. So like the fact that ordinary experiences, which are cheaper and which can happen at any moment, um, can produce as much happiness Mm -hmm. as extraordinary experiences, I think is really powerful. And I don't think we have to wait until we're sort of old and on our deathbed, but I think that what, um, to enjoy that. And so I think that what this sort of points to is the power of sort of saving, savoring the simple, Mm -hmm. Um, and trees are amazing, by the way. <laughs> I try to remind myself that as much as possible. Like, oh, there's so many of them, you forget. And then right. like, trees are amazing. They are. They're amazing. They are. So, and they take time to grow. And yeah. it's like. If you're going to watch something, uh, I'm into like uh, the uh, the Planet Earth 2 uh, documentaries, yeah. those sorts of things. Blue Planet. Ooh. Any, yeah. those things that help you appreciate the data then you go out in nature and you're like oh squirrel I know things right. about squirrels I didn't before and Ta-da. now I appreciate them more well and it just highlights the like incredibleness of you know what is happening just naturally in the world and gives perspective and it does those amazing yeah. cameras that they have that's like to see like a worm is like oh i saw a worm today outside my step and i didn't take the time to like be as fascinated right. as i am right now um it, i mean it's totally incredible and like yesterday with my husband got super into watching the uh, SpaceX launch. Um, mm-hmm. And so he had us rewatch it when we got home and I was like, Ugh, whatever. But even like watching that is just incredible. Not only what happens in nature, but what whatever we humans... we're going to Mars, I <laughs> yeah. guess. <And> <laughs> I like, I like yeah. how unimpressed you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just like, I, I wasn't thinking about it or like yeah. focusing on it until you're watching it, you know, sending this you know, roadster with a, you know, robot that's wearing a hat up to float around the space is just unbelievable. And so I guess I'll just say... We finally have hats in space. (laughs) I mean, that's (laughs) the big news. I don't know why the the hat was the thing that really... (laughs) But my son, when he saw it, he was like, oh, man. Like, he was all sad for the guy because he's like, he's out there all alone. I'm like, it's okay. And I think it was him wearing the hat that was like, dude, this guy's just floating around. Um... So digression, but all to say that um, there's extraordinary within the ordinary. Mm -hmm. I think that's the point. Yeah. Well, I feel happy that you joined me today. <laughs> well, Thank thanks. You so this much. was fun. Yeah. So, Cassie, I have each one of my guests plug a nonprofit of their choice since I, I hear that that sort of thing makes people happy when yes. you're doing things for others and being a good steward and that sort of thing. We get to pat ourselves on the back and change the world oh, make it a better great. place yeah yeah not? um so uh when you asked me this question i, I was um i thought about i, I went to a, an event recently actually it was a comedy show as a fundraiser so i mm. appreciate you funny people because i certainly am not but oh, I so they were it. good <laughs> that's <laughs> not always the case um but it was raising money for a organization called um, the Im- Immigrant Defenders Law Center. Mm. And what they are, they're one of the largest nonprofit providers of deportation defense in California. 
and they focus on helping immigrants, including unaccompanied children and youth who arrive alone in the U.S. and now face deportation, as well as adults with mental health challenges and legal permanent residents facing deportation due to unlawful conviction. And the idea is that, um, or this, like driving this, um, their work is the belief that uh, competent legal representation is a right and not a privilege, and they work to provide it to as many immigrants as possible. And certainly, um, not to get political, but over the last you know year and a half, um, and <laughs> uh, living in yeah. um, California and LA, I'm really proud to be in a city where um, we care and value. Um, Other human beings? Yes. <laughs> um, and the extent to which that they can um, access um, proper legal guidance yeah. um, to navigate the this crazy system and this um, um, these laws that are changing quickly. Um, so yeah. I, I, I'm appreciative of their work and supportive of Me it. Me too. Yeah. One, one day we're going to start treating each other like humans. I, I, I feel it. It's... Uh, it's going to take a little while. There's some yeah. growing pains. Yeah. That empathy is a hard thing to learn. Well, that's why we need to watch good movies. That was <laughs> right. Exactly. Increased perspective taking. Well, thank you very much for Thanks. joining me. Thanks for having and me. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious folks. We'll talk with you next week. Next week on the podcast, we are talking with Chris Kilham, medicine hunter, super awesome, charming, funny fella, really smart and very, very experienced, has been traveling around the world checking out uh, all sorts of different alternative medicines and what uh, other cultures are using, and he's going to tell us about... uh, about what's happening out there in in the plant medicine world. And it was just a fantastic episode. I know you guys are going to love it. Uh, and all my uh, um, for all my psychedelic enthusiasts out there, coming up May 5th to May 13th, we will be doing a trip to Jamaica for the world's only legal psilocybin mushroom retreat. You can go to mycomeditations, M-Y-C-O meditations.com to learn more about this special retreat for just Here We Are listeners, just all of us, you and me and other Here We Are listeners, all getting together in Jamaica and having some amazing experiences. I'm really looking forward to it, and I hope to see you there. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my absolute favorites. See you next week.
Let's say uh, Seinfeld was on an island yeah. and he was blowing Boris Karloff. What would it, what would that be like? <laughs> it might go something like this. Oh, Mr. Karloff, I loved you and Frankenstein, and I love giving you a blowjob. Why, Mr. Seinfeld, I'd love having you fuck. 